Throughout church history, many men have died over issues related to the Lord's Supper. The modern American church tends to de-emphasize it. Is the Lord's Supper that important? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Before the Reformation, John Huss comes along and he ends up being put to death as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. And the emblem of that movement, the Hussite movement, was a cup on a flag because he insisted that the laity must receive the cup and not just the bread. Before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church would only usually do um, communion once a, once a year. And then the Reformation happens, and the Reformers put a lot of emphasis on the Lord's Supper. And most have increased, you know, like Calvin would say it should be done weekly, but he ended up settling to do it once a month. And then by the 17th century, you have the Covenanters, where 18,000 of them die because they refused to kneel before the elements of the Lord's Supper. So the church used to take the Lord's Supper very seriously. Modern churches don't take it nearly as seriously. So why is it important? It starts with the importance that comes from the fact that you have in, in the Bible the words, do this, and they're coming out of Jesus' mouth. You know, this is something that there is a command to do it. And exactly how, and, you know, there's other passages in Scripture that explain that. And Jesus even talks about some of the reasoning right then. But it just it starts with this, the fact that it's a command that comes from Jesus. And then when you see that it's a command that's related to the passing away of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant, I mean, even he even says that when he's giving it to them, that this is the new covenant in my blood. This is talking about everything that all of scripture was waiting and groaning for is, is happening at this moment. And then, and then this is Jesus' moment where he's saying, all right, this is the new thing moving forward. This is how you remember my death. This is how you remember me. It starts with a command from Jesus. That's why it's important. I mean, you know, that's why anything's important is God says to do it. You know, when he chases off the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees when they're all gathered around him and he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? I mean, he's, he even used this as a dividing line, right? The picture of the Lord's Supper was a dividing line that he's, he, like you said, it's the establishment of the new covenant. And he's saying how different the new covenant is than the old covenant. And he's very much offending the people that were in the the old covenant with this picture, the picture that's in the Lord's Supper. But the, the really important thing about dividing lines is they also unify. Right. You know, when you draw a line and you and you are forcing people on one side or the other, then the group on one side has has to unify. And this is what he's saying to unify around. I mean, it's communion. It's coming together. And I think, you know, very related to that is the idea, you know, that Paul writes to the church at Corinth right after writing about how they didn't do discipline on the man, they didn't put him out, the man that had his father's wife, and then he talks about why they're disunited. And, you know, the emphasis is that when you come together, that you're supposed to come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 20, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And so he's saying that the divisions in the church are reflected in the way they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, right? When you come together, there's factions. That's why you're not doing the Lord's Supper right. 
frequent communion, or when you say weekly communion, what you really mean is, is communion as often as you're gathering together to to worship, you know, together in one place. And so, I mean, this is this is a fundamental part of that argument. It's because Paul's basically saying the reason you aren't doing it is because of your division. So when you don't have divisions, when you come together to worship, it should be to part of that should be to take the Lord's Supper. And so, I mean, there's just a fundamental centrality of it there. I mean, as like I said, it's not the only argument for it, but you can see in his the, the flow of his argument and the logic of it, it's very much geared towards that way of thinking. And I mean, I would argue that you look at, there's the preaching of the word. You can listen to a sermon any day of the week. There's the, you know, praying, there's singing hymns. There's, you know, you can have all these other things that you do during the, the worship service. But what sets apart the Sabbath is actually the breaking of bread together. And, you know, I would argue that you're supposed to physically, the Lord's Supper is a meal. But but the idea is, is that this is the unifying thing. This is what makes the Sabbath and sets it apart as a feast day, as the Lord's Supper. And that when you don't do the Lord's Supper, you don't have the feast day and you don't have the idea of coming and celebrating together, which is what the picture is supposed to be. And there's a, there's a part of it where, I mean, so we did two previous episodes on like looking for a church and when you should leave a church. And one of the things we kept doing in those episodes is we kept comparing joining a church kind of to being married. And I don't think we brought it up in any of the episodes, but the reason is tied to this. And I mean, when Paul talks about the, where you're sinning is that you're not discerning the body, that you're in, in communion, that you're not discerning the body. And there's this part of it where one of the, re- I mean, in marriage, two become one. And obviously a church is not exactly like a marriage, but there is a part of it where in the church you that become- you're members of one another. Right, you become members of one another. And so there's, this is part of the reason why a church is, is similar to in ways of a marriage, in a sense, is because there is this, and communion is what that's rooted in. Communion is what causes that oneness to exist and the reality of it. Yeah, and maybe it doesn't cause the oneness to exist, but right. but no, it, it it is a it is to be a weekly reminder that that unity exists, right? Because we're doing it not to produce the unity, but you do it to express the unity and to be reminded of the importance of the unity because they just, when they were disunified, they just stopped doing it. It's and like the, the solution is of affection a, in a relationship, right? I mean, that right. you have the physical, you shouldn't be, you have the relationship because of the physical things, but that you do the physical things because you have this relationship already and it flows out of it naturally. Right. And so, and again, just again, there's real comparisons between those things. So this idea of coming together as one body is talked about in 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 16 through 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The more frequent term in Scripture is the Lord's Supper, but obviously from this passage is where you get the idea of communion. And it is about joining together to be one people, to be one body, to be one bread, and that you partake out of that one loaf so that you you see the physical picture of we are the body of Christ and that we have real connection to one another. And the connection is not because of our ancestry, not our ethnicity, not our language, not in the end. The, the connection is that we have Jesus Christ. And even where it says this is the communion of the blood of Christ and it's talking about a body. I mean, there's this part of it where you didn't have to know about anatomy, but as you know more about anatomy, I mean, you look, the body is, there's one blood flow throughout the entire body. I mean, every part of the body is nourished by, you know what I mean? There is, mm-hmm. you, and you see these, you see these common ideas where you're saying, I'm bringing together a body. You know, the, the, the cells in my fingertip are nourished by the same blood that nourishes my brain, that nourishes, the, and so 
there is this there is this this unity that you can understand and how things are knit together. I mean, these are not these aren't shallow concepts. They're things that he's he's trying to ground them in and pointing towards a greater reality than and like I said, when you when we lower the importance of communion, we lower the our the belief we have in the reality of what it brings about. And so I mean it's it's a it's a very important it's a very important thing. And I think one of the reasons that churches tend to de emphasize it is because where we are now and where we've been for 150 years or something in the American church, what we've been in is very individual Christianity, right? It's about your profession of faith. It's about your your walk with the Lord. It's about it's very much about you individually. And so what we've done is when it's all about, you know, it's not rules of relationship, that type of idea. Well, it's your relationship not with the body of Christ. It's your relationship with Christ. And so that de-emphasizes the body. Well, communion is God's way of saying, this is supposed to be emphasized. And so when you have a bunch of people who say, Jesus Christ died for my sins, rather than a bunch of people saying, Jesus Christ died for our sins, which is a very different meaning, right? Because then all of a sudden, he died for the church and not just me. But so often in churches, they have such an individual emphasis that why would you do the Lord's Supper if it's an individual emphasis? Because the Lord's Supper is given to say we're one body, we're one blood. And when you are a body, it means that your sin affects other people's sins. It means that your that your salvation is even in a sense open to examination by others. And the closer in proximity you are to someone, the greater visibility that has. So there's a real interest in keeping salvation individual because it it says no one else can ask me these questions. No one else can think about these things. No one else can examine anything about me that that has any bearing on where on my on who I am in Christ. And Scripture really argues against that. And it and it has a practice to say, I'm going to push back against that thought. When I was putting up slides to talk about, I used Matthew six nine partly because I, I preached on this recently, the Lord's Prayer, and. You know, it starts in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so when we think about what we're supposed to do, right, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it for the glory of God. And when we think about the Lord's Supper, where we should start with one of the reasons that God commands us to do the Lord's Supper is because it expresses how holy he is. Because it is very much about fulfilling this prayer that Jesus Christ commanded everybody to pray. Pray this way. And so as we think about it, you know, the place to start, I think a lot of people start with church discipline. They start with restoration rather than the glory of God. But when we think of the Lord's Supper and when we think about anything, we're supposed to start with the glory of God. And so the Lord's Supper is about glorifying God. And, you know, the most obvious thing is Paul says, do this until he comes because this is how you proclaim his death. I mean, and the idea of, of God's name being hallowed by what we do but that being a primary duty of the church to to make God's name holy on earth. Right. And I mean our father who our father's in heaven, but we're here and we're praying that by what you've done through us your name be, is made more holy, is seen to be more holy. Right. And I mean we're not actually increasing God's holiness. And so I mean obviously he's not asking God so I mean obviously it is that we show God to be more holy. And so I think that's just, I actually think that's something that 
is very much lost. But what the church is supposed to do, right, is supposed to cause the glory of God to fill the earth the way, the, or to cover the earth the way the waters cover the seas. I mean, right. that's what we're supposed to be doing. And when we start to take it and put the Lord's Supper and say, well, we don't do this, we're going to just do these other practices, and Christ commanded that, we should recognize that we are stealing glory from God, that this is one of the distinctives. It's even a distinctive when, when you sit in that church and you have unbelievers in that church, and those unbelievers sit and see the distinction between those who are partaking the Lord's Supper and those who aren't. That's about the glory of God. Even to the unbelievers in the church, it's a testimony of the, of the glory of God. And so, you know, when we think about it, if you're not glorifying God inside the meeting of the church in this fundamental way that he said proclaim his death, then are we really showing the glory of God outside the church? And if you don't see how it glorifies God, or if you, by your practice of it, make it into such a thing that it is just a bare institution, you should step back and go, do I, under do I understand what we're doing? Because in the end, I mean, it's not that it's a mechanical thing, but there are aspects to what's done that are what, that the practice of it is what causes God's name to be hallowed. And there's this, you know what I mean? And so there's, I think there's, it's very common for people to not you know, they see it and they go, well, we're supposed to do it, but we don't understand. And, right. and and in the end, I mean, there's a real problem with that because Paul's not writing to them going, he's not acting like, he's not acting like communion is a mystery. He talks about other things being a mystery, but communion fundamentally isn't this great mystery in one way. And it is one of the fundamental differences between, between Christianity and other religions is that other religions are all about us giving to God or the worshipers giving to God. Right, that they think that they cut, kill these bulls and these goats because their God wants these sacrifices. And the picture of the Lord's Supper is very much the opposite, that it's God giving himself to man. And we're supposed to be reminded of that so that we see that. So part of it, part of the reason why it's so tied to his holiness, I would even argue, is because it is the distinctive that makes Christianity so different than all the worldly religions where it's all I have to somehow appease this pagan God. I mean, and, and that's really important that that you have this institution that, that's at the heart of, of in, in a sense, defining what the body of Christ is. If you, if you want to say, you know, Christians or non-Christians, what's if, if you're an alien coming from outer space and you're trying to look at and de decide who they are, you look at their rites and their rituals. And this is the one that, where it really is fundamentally God, God directing himself towards man, not the other direction. You know, I mean, you could you could even compare this to, say, prayer. You know, in a sense, prayer is our attempt to give God something. It's us reaching up. But this is really God reaching down and, and drawing us up. Right, and reminding us, right, because it's proclaiming his death, so it's reminding us both that he's doing that now, but also that he did it in the, the bodily form of Jesus Christ descending from heaven. When it talks about his death, let's go to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What's really interesting about it is I've, it's always kind of bothered me in one sense because one of the things that's really key to Christianity is Christ's resurrection. And it doesn't mention that here, but it does. Because in the end, that's what's distinctive about, in a lot of ways, about the Lord's death. Sure. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, it is a different death than anyone has ever died. And when you talk about Christ's death, you have to talk about the fact that it lasted three days. You know what I mean? And there is this, so, I mean, when you proclaim Christ, when you proclaim the Lord's death, it's all there. 
but it's also the emphasis on it is in the fact that God, like you said, that God died for man. That that it is a and that he took because it's the bread and the cup. It's it's the picture of the bread being the body and the cup being the blood. Right. It's it really is the emphasis is on his incarnation so that he could die. Right. And so I mean, so it's it's, but yeah, it's 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 a very. Christianity is a very odd religion compared to all the others in the sense that there is no there is no other religion. Because it's true and all the other ones are false is another oddity. <laughs> the most distinctive oddity about it is that it's true. But I mean that in none of the others would there be the – you can't sell someone on the idea that God died for them. You know what I mean? If you're going to build this thing, I mean, you've got, you know what I mean? It's like if you're, if you're trying to come and you're trying to con people into something, you're trying to sell something to man, that's not, that's not, that's not something you can really sell to people. I mean, and it's so, I mean, and that's it just, it, which is what is just very distinctive about it. I mean, when you talked earlier about it being the, the incarnation sort of being there, hidden sideways, I, I mean, that's really, that's really important. If you think about what the Lord's Supper is functionally replacing, I mean, it's happening during Passover, and and all that's left of the whole Passover meal and all those details are these little bits, some bread and a cup. That's it. That's all that's left. There is no more bloody lamb. You know, there's no more roasted lamb with this. You know, when you sit down and have Lord the Lord's Supper— What's not there is just as important. There's no body there. There's no there. It, it, it's replaced. Well, the, it's in the terms of the bread, but yes. But but I mean, there's there's there is there's no actual you know dead animal sitting mm-hmm. there that that that's what you're eating of. There's no. It's it's replacing the entire sacrificial system in a sense. There's no there's no more bull in an altar. There's no more blood splashed on the side of that altar. There's there's no, none of it's. I mean, it's remarkably civilized compared to everything that that was replacing it in a sense and you know don't beat me up over that one but 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 you know and it's you you look around and you say oh because jesus is resurrected we do this now because jesus is wrecked because he's resurrected we don't have actual blood we don't have actual flesh anymore and and I mean I mean like literal blood like they would have with the burnt offerings and the peace offerings that's not there because that's all finished now we have these memorials that we have because the one thing's been done and because he's not dead anymore you know we proclaim his death well he he died a really special kind of death he died a temporary death you know that's really interesting that's really important that's why we have bread and wine and that's why we don't have you know a slab of a bull that our father slaughtered and then brought home for a peace offering. We're at peace with God, and this is what we have instead. And I mean, and it's also important, you know, when we think about proclaiming his death, I mean, this is this is what separates the people that are Christians from other people, is believing that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. And without that, then we're just like any other religion, we're just like any other people. And that's so key because, you know, it is very easy for people to lose that focus because that shouldn't just affect what we do on Sunday. That's supposed to affect us throughout the week. That's supposed to affect us throughout our lives. That the day of rest is to be strengthened for the rest of the week. And on that day of rest, you're supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper so that you remember his death is supposed to affect my whole life. 
And so like in Acts 4, 10 through 12, it says, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Part of the Lord's Supper in proclaiming his death is the people that are his people are supposed to be remembering his death and they're supposed to be remembering how central his death is to be to their life. And so it's not just that we remember his death because of what he did for us, but he re we remember his death so that we remember we died with him so that we can now live and walk with him and walk in the newness of life. And so without that proclamation, it's very easy for the church to get worldly. And so the Lord's Supper is one of the protections, one of the basic protections about worldliness because it keeps the focus on the church on the death of Christ rather than the things of the world. And it's also like you're talking about as you – you do this each week, and so you're strengthened on the Sabbath, and so you can go into the world. And one of the things you, you do immediately is Paul says you're a living sacrifice. And so it goes from on, on the Sabbath, you, you memorialize the sacrifice that Christ, that God was to his people. And then you walk out and you behave like Christ, and you are a living sacrifice to those he's called you to serve. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, it, it like all great leaders, he, sh he shows you what must be done. I mean, and so there's, you know, I mean, there's this part of it where, I mean, he has demonstrated to you the pattern of his life. And he has said, go and, and do in a sense likewise. And he says in Matthew, you know, that you, if you want to live with him, you must die with him. And so part of the Lord's Supper should be, we should remember his death because that's tying to we died with him. And therefore we're supposed to live in a different way. So it is the beginning of the week. So we think now that we joined in his death, on, on the Sabbath day, on the, on the first day of the week, it's supposed to remember or cause us to remember to join in his life the rest of the week. And so the two are very tied together. And we can't walk the way that we're supposed to walk unless we remember that Jesus Christ died for us so we have died to the things of the world. And fundamental to that, it's, a, it's food. And food, you think about all of the things that you know about just earthly food and, and the way earthly food functions. It's, it sustains you. It, it provides you nourishment. It, it, it fills your lack. And of all of the things that God could have picked as a, here's what I want you to use as your reminder, he picks one that points to all of those things that, that we're supposed to, to bring everything you know about missing a meal and then come to this and say, this is how Jesus fills all those same things. Mm -hmm. This is this is what you know. Every meal that you've ever had, they're actually all about how you should think about this one. And then it works the other way too. This is how you should think about all those other meals. This is how you should think about all those other lacks. Is God has provided. This is God reaching down. This is God giving you something. And it's a, and it's of all the things that we do in Christianity, this is one that is obviously tactile you're you have to put actual bread in your in your mouth you have to drink an actual cup and it's this physical reminder god is giving you of hey i provide for you and here's how i provided jesus died so that you might live right and it's physical provision so that we can remember the spiritual provision right in matthew 4 it says, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
And so as we partake of that physical food, it is supposed to remind us and tie us tie it back to the idea that that this is the secondary food that he feeds us. Not that it's not important, but it's the secondary food. It's the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Christ is the word. So you have both pictures there. Christ is the word. You're eating his body, which is ties to eating the word. And we're supposed to spiritually eat the word. And so it's to remind us, not just as we partake, that we're communing with the word of God, but it's supposed to remind us that we're supposed to live by the word of God and that we're supposed to remember the word of God is how we have life. I mean, you think about all of it. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of those disciples that actually stuck with Jesus. And think about all those things that Jesus says that, that we know where he's like, you have to eat my my body and drink my blood. Or, or he says things like, I am the bread of life. And, and he says you know, these things about spiritual food. And then all of a sudden, the last night that he's alive before his resurrection, he sits down, he has this meal. It's this meal that probably every one of those people had had multiple times throughout their life. It's this defining feature of the Israelite nation, of the Ju right. of the Jewish nation at that time. And he says- It continues to be. It, it, this, you know, he picks up a portion of the bread out of that meal and says, hey, this is my body. And I don't know if they got it at that moment. I think the answer is no. If probably, you, read the, you know, the probably gospel, not. But, <laughs> but by the time Paul's writing, they, by the time they receive the Holy Spirit, they get it. By the time they, get, they get the Holy Spirit, you know, we know Paul has a pretty advanced theology of the the Lord's Supper, so we know pretty pretty soon there they figured out. But the, it, but it all comes together in that moment when he says, "This is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood." There's another picture here that I think is worth remembering too, because it is. You look through the Old Testament, and there are many cases in the Old Testament where, where somebody is fed at the king's table. And that's, a, that's an important picture, right? You have Mephibosheth fed at the table of David, and you have other places where you have this picture that, that you know, the, the powerful and mighty take in the weak and feed them and care for them. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, it's also to remind us that Jesus is king. It is also to remind us that Jesus is king and not just that he's our savior because it's really easy to, to narrow it down. But one of the pictures of being fed at his table is, I mean, it's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's table and being fed at his table, it's the picture of what a king does. And it's to remind us that all our provision comes from us, but also because there's a sense, not a sense, there's a reality that everybody's provision in the world comes to, to you know, from, by the hand of God. But there's also this picture that, that he feeds his own people in a very special way at his table that's different than how he feeds everybody in the world. So we're reminded that he is providing, he is our provider in all things. But then there's also a way that we're reminded he's, he's a special provider for his people. And even the part of him providing, that he provides his own I – I don't know if I can say this correctly. I hope I can. That he provides his own body because we were talking about – the disciples not getting it immediately and the way you know that they get it in the end is christ says he was obedient unto death and i don't know if you've ever been given a job to do where you did not have sufficient obedience to spend what was necessary to do it you're given a task and it, you know i mean when you're a teenager and you're lazy you know what i mean and you you're supposed to go mow the backyard and you can't even you won't even use yourself enough to go mow the backyard in one pass but then there are bigger and bigger jobs that require more and more of you you're going to go you know a, a soldier is sent to the battlefield and is asked to 
to go in advance on the enemy. You know, and there's and so there's this part of it where the disciples look at Jesus Christ and they understand. I mean, right after the you know they go outside and he sees people and just him speaking knocks them all down. They know he could walk away. You know, I mean, they know right. he's laying down his life. And so there's this part of it where when you look at when you look at their lives, they understood what communion was with him because what they did with their lives was they went to their death. You know what I mean? And so there's this there's this mark in there of and this is part of it when it talks about take up your cross and follow me and all these things. This is what you know what I mean? There is this part of it where you're fed with this food and this food is telling you on a very fundamental level what your life is meant to be about. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's important to Lord's Supper frequently is because we want to pretend like we don't need to be reminded of these things, but we absolutely do need to be reminded of these things. We need to constantly be reminded that that we are supposed to be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to be constantly reminded that to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the church needs to be reminded of these things because, and to tie it back, this is how God's name is hallowed. This is how you say, this is the holy God because I am focusing on him and I'm living my life after him and I'm serving him and he is my king and he is my savior. And these are tying all these things together. It's We need that reminder to keep the focus where it should be because it's very easy for us to get focused on the flesh. Right. That's what the parable of the sower warns us against is that there will be people who Right. They are choked out by the cares of the world. At, at the risk of making it sound selfish, the way we've talked about it, I mean, this is this is a gift from God. This is one of the ways God is expressing his affections, you know, a memorial of his past mm -hmm. affection that, that is continuing to us. Why wouldn't you want more of that? Why wouldn't you want more opportunities to hear from God about his affection for his body? I mean— perverse reason you wouldn't want more of it is you're not saved and and those those points where you're you risk coming close to god are are scary so let's not do it that way sure and we can take another aspect of that right which is that you can look at it as king taking in somebody to their table and then you can also look at it as a as a household where you're in the household of faith and to be in the household of faith guess what none of us are the master Christ is the master. Right. So to some extent, you come to the Lord's table also as a slave, as a servant. And so people don't want to see it that way. They want to see it, them surviving by their own strength and by their own will. And so there is an aspect of to say, well, I need to be fed by my master. You know, it diminishes our self-esteem, which is a very good thing because our self-esteem needs to be diminished. But I think that's another reason why people don't want it is because they also feel like a slave which they should. Right. And there's a there's a sense of equality in the body and communion that that point, you know what I mean, that in this world there's there's a there's a there's a lack of equality in a lot of things. And God's designed that inequality. I mean, there's some people are wealthy, some people are poor, some people are in the same family, some people are in different families, some people are leaders within the church, some people aren't leaders within the church. And there is this part of it where in, when you look at the spiritual reality of communion is there is an equality. You're all right. coming as equal slaves of your master to his table to sit down. 
and I think we've talked about this in other episodes. I mean, like when a, a father and a son who are who are communicants when they sit down beside each other, they're not father and son at the table; they're brothers at the table. When the elder takes communion at the table, even though he may be speaking words about it, he is just another. He is another slave of Jesus Christ. He is another brother in Christ who is sitting down at the table of their father, and communing with them. And there's a real there's a real important reality to that 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 it can be uncomfortable for the church. There can be there are churches where that pushes against the idea of the church, and there's a problem with that. There's another aspect that's very related to the service that you know you see when Jesus is talking to his disciples after speaking to the woman at the well in John four thirty two through thirty four. But he said to them, "I have food to eat of which you do not know." Therefore, the disciples said to one another, "Has anyone brought him anything to eat?" Jesus said to them, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work." So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to remember as he feeds us that the real food that he gives us is to do his work. Not many people like think about it that way, but you know, Jesus Christ said, hey, if you did the works of Abraham, if you're Abraham's son, you'll do the works of Abraham. If you're, you know, if you're the works of the devil or the son of the devil, you'll do the works of the devil. Well, if you're the son of Christ, you do the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is to do the will of him who sent me. And that's our food. And so he gives us this physical picture of what our food is supposed to be. Our food is to do his will. And there's a, and I think we've probably all experienced a carnal form of this where you're doing something that you care greatly about and you skip eating because you're so glad you're making such good progress on it that it that it's more important. To, you know, what I mean, that literally this this plea. I mean, there's times where you're doing such physical labor, you have to stop and eat. But I mean, I've had times where I was doing physical things and we were just really moving along and my desire was so great to finish what I was doing that we just pushed through. And that was incredibly satisfying. That and, and there's a greaterness to what he's saying, but I'm just saying people do this all the times for things they care about. And there's a part of it where he, I mean, he's saying both of those things in here. He's saying, I mean, because it is, there is a nourishment to it that they can't see. But there's times where that's what you're telling other people is, this is satisfying to me to do this. I'm, you know, I want this. And he's saying that becomes your reality. Your reality is that doing your father's will nourishes you. And you know what I mean? And so, Mm -hmm. I I mean, it is, that is the food you partake of. And especially when you tie it to church discipline and things, the Lord's Supper, which it's clearly tied to in 1 Corinthians 11. So when you tie it to those things, you see how tied it is to the idea of doing his will. Because the idea is, is the person that's supposed to partake of that physical food is the person who's partaking of the food that Christ partook of, which is to do the will of the one who sent him. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, what it does now, right? We're supposed to be thinking about doing the will now. We're supposed to be saying about how God provides for us now. But in it, as you said at the beginning, Jonathan, that this is about the proclamation of the new covenant. And the idea of the new covenant is this is who goes to heaven. So we're not supposed to just be reminded what we should be doing now, but we're supposed to be reminded of where our hope is because our hope is not in the here and now. Our hope is in eternal life. And you can see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so, I mean, here he is, like we talked about, this is the new, there is a new covenant. This is, this is why only those who have been, who have been saved, who have been regenerated, who have been justified, who have been, are supposed to partake of it, who have been baptized, are supposed to partake of this because they are part of this covenant. The new covenant, the old covenant was made with the physical nation of Israel. The new covenant is made with the new Israel, which is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is only for them. Moses didn't get to partake of this cup on earth. Moses was not part of the new covenant that was made. I mean, and, and this is, and, but Moses was saved. This is distinct from being ever having been saved in the history of, of, of the world. But it is in this time period, all those who are saved are part of this new covenant. And so there is a part of it where, I mean, it's very distinctive who this is for. And it's one of the reasons why it's, there are very few groups that, there are very few groups that practice something like pedo communion. I mean, when you look at even among, you know, where there's disagreements between Presbyterians and between Baptists over, you know, over baptism, there's very, there's a very narrow area of disagreement over communion because this is just incredibly explicit in Scripture that this is only for those who are part of the new covenant, who are saved by the blood of Christ. And when we think about his death, right, what, what Paul is and what Christ tied it to, because he's just quoting Christ, but what he tied it to was that the new covenant was sealed by that blood so that whoever believed in him would be saved. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so that covenantal sealing by that blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Sins cannot be forgiven without that blood being shed. And so when we proclaim his death, it's not just, you know, there's other things that we talked about that proclaiming his death, he's alive now, that those have immediate effects, but what it's also supposed to remind us of is that, and the one thing that he states is, it's supposed to remind you that his blood was shed so that you could have eternal life, because that's what the new covenant is about, is about those who believe in Jesus Christ, that they will have eternal life in that covenant, and they'll receive the Holy Spirit, and they'll be caused to, I mean, all these other things, but the hope is in eternal life, and it's directly related to the Lord's Supper. So the people who don't want to celebrate the Lord's Supper very often, where is their hope? Because it's like they don't want to be reminded of where all our hope is supposed to be. Because if our hope is of this world, then we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. If our hope is in eternal life, then we go, wait a second, there's other ways we should be living now. And the Lord's Supper and his death and the shedding of his blood and the cup, where you see that, and you see the picture of blood in the cup, we're supposed to remember he sealed it so we will be in his presence. And that passage is probably familiar to the point where it it just washes over you and you don't really pay attention to the details of the words. But this is Jesus saying to a group of people, this is the new covenant. This is the sign of the new covenant for you. And, and that was a group of people where they have this whole big giant section of their Bible that is talking about, there's going to be a new covenant. It's going to be better than the old covenant. Your old covenant has got problems. There's going to be a new covenant. It's going to be better. There's better promises associated with that new covenant. The old covenant's not sufficient. You need something better. And you think about the details of what's involved with that new covenant coming. It's God's going to put the law on your hearts. You know, 
no longer will a man have to say to his his neighbor, know the Lord. It's all of these kinds of things that, that are wrapped up with the new, here's what the new covenant's going to look like. And Jesus is saying, here, this, it starts now. And Paul's saying, we're supposed to do it to be reminded yeah, <laughs> that we are not that in the old covenant. We are in the new covenant. The blood has been shed. And so we have... You know, in, in Acts 1, it talks, Jesus Christ says to his disciples, you know, stay here until power comes on from on high. And the Lord's Supper is to remind us that, you know, because one of the promises of the new covenant is I will send my spirit and he will cause you to walk in my statutes and commandments from Ezekiel 37. I mean, it's it's inherent in that idea of the new covenant that he will give us the power to overcome sin. And he will bring us to eternal life to those who are truly saved. And whatever your eschatology is, I mean, that passage really says, hey, the practice of doing communion here defines the epoch that you're in. This, Wherever you think the end is going to look like, this is the thing that's happening between Jesus' first death and when Jesus comes back. This is, this is what we do until that time. Right. Right, and so there's a real, you know, limit set on it but that limit is beyond now and you know as the church wanders from that it it really is wandering from the importance of the new covenant and that's a really significant thing because they want to say oh i love jesus they want to say you know what a friend we have in jesus there's lots of things that the church wants to say but god's told us how to proclaim that we're in the new covenant that he is going to come and he is going to to redeem his people and he's going to give us corruption is going to put on incorruption and all these promises and we're going after other things when we don't want the lord's supper because the lord's supper is supposed to be a reminder of this promise the promise that we will drink the cup with him again and you know these are some things that you know churches or a lot of pastors say that you have to you know make this the focus of every sermon um you know sometimes to the exclusion of what the the primary emphasis of the passages you know the you know the christ's blood is shed for us um but then they you know then if the lord's supper is not done they're, they're not using the way that god gave that it could be emphasized every single week instead they you know come up with a new way that they want to emphasize it every week right so they instead of being fed by the word they want to take the word and twist it to make it do their agenda which is to proclaim the gospel when god's already told us this is how you do it this is how you say this is the new covenant this is how you make sure the people remember what unifies us is is nothing except the blood of christ and the fact that we've all been brought near to god through the blood of christ i mean it's actually worth pushing on that because i think that's a really good point because a lot of times why churches argue about that they have to preach the gospel every week is because they have many people among them who are not saved or who don't you know they're they're, they're bringing people into the church to hear the gospel but if you use the commu- if you use communion as this it means you have to have people sit there and watch you take communion and not let them participate i mean and and do you understand how much of a better testimony that is I mean, you know what I'm saying? And there, and to declare there's light and darkness, to, co- to declare right. there's separation, right? This is this is kind of the one of the things the Lord's Supper does is testify that there's a separation. And so many of the churches, they want they don't want to testify to a separation. They just want to testify to how you become right with God without saying there's a difference between those who become right with God and those who aren't right with God. And really showing the difference probably 
testifies to the holiness of God's name a lot more than just saying you need to be saved by Jesus Christ. I mean, it's making me real. I mean, in the end, I mean, because there's this part of it where everything we do, they're for reasons. Everything, if we say this needs to be there, I mean, there's this part of it where you want to push back and say this doesn't have to be a part of every sermon, but it's already a part of every worship service. If it, or God's saying it should be a part of every worship service already. The reason you don't want it is because it's uncomfortable. The reason you don't want it is because it comes with other things with it. The, you know what I mean? And so there's this – I think that's a really important thing for people to think through is that the history of the church has been marked by our – our corporate rebellion against the institutions that God has made and what they actually accomplish, and that we believe our means accomplish more. We believe that our means are kinder. We believe, I mean, I still remember sitting in a church service one time. We had communion, and there was a guy in there, and I, I don't know the full story. I just knew they were his relatives. They were there. The table had been fenced. And they started to take communion, and I saw him jump up, walk over to them, and, like, grab the communion elements and go, no, this is not for you. And I still just I still just remember that moment to this day. His that was a very that was a I'm, they'll never forget that moment. <laughs> I, I mean I I know I did he didn't. Grab I remember it out the of, moment I he was didn't there. grab it out of my hands, and I remember. <laughs> I'm, I know they'll remember it. I mean, and, and this is I mean, looking at people and going, there are people here today who do not know the Lord. Do not take this. This is not for you. That is a I mean, so I mean, there's a real part of this where the church has. We've rebelled, and we need to we need to be really conscious. This isn't us working through the scripture and figuring out what we should do. We need to understand that our sin is present with us, and it has shaped our practices. And and the corollary to that, I mean, I want to say the good things about it. If you're saying it's not for you to one group of people, it's because you've been saying it is for you to another group, right? And that's and and that's really. I mean, that's kind of the emphasis of it is it is for this group. It This is God communing with this group. And because it's for you, because of this is this is God saying, these are my people. And those people, by taking it, are responding, you are our God. Then those other people are, you know, they are on the outside. And part of it has to be done mechanically by fencing the table, by by explaining at each taking of it. Here are the conditions that that God has put around this, and and so we have to reiterate those. We have to honor those, but but it's really the the fencing the table is really fencing it around the people that can eat at that table. And when we think about this, right, this is where you start to have like I mean the Hussite wars they lasted for a long time, and a lot of people died, and finally the Roman Catholic Church kind of gave up, and you get the whole idea of the Bohemians being these radical people. You know, even now Bohemians is kind of a slang term for people that just are without any any mores and it all comes back to the cup so when you come to a passage like matthew 26 27 through 29 then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is said for many for the remission of sins but i say to you i will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom the Roman Catholic Church was saying that the only ones that would drink it with Christ were the priests. Huss comes along and says, no, everybody who's saved should have the cup because everybody who's saved, the ones who drink the cup, they're the ones who will drink it with Christ. Right. And so it's a sign for those who are saved, not for the mythical priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. 
And so when you consider it, right, you can see how people would say, this is a really serious thing because you bar me from the cup. You're saying I can't drink with Christ now. Then why should I have hope in eternity that I'll drink with Christ? And just, you know, a historical note on this one in case it wasn't clear. The Roman Catholic practice was that you That's received right. – you just received the bread and the priest was – you know, whoever was officiating, they were the only one who actually drank from the, the cup. So the cup is there. But the priest is drinking from it, and none of the people are. And that's and, what Huss is reacting right. against. That They talk about taking communion in both kinds. Right, and what the Roman Catholic Church said as well, if you cut a chunk out of your flesh, that it will have blood in it, so that's good enough. But clearly there were two elements in the giving of the Lord's Supper, and that was just a twisting of the Scripture. And Huss is going, no, everybody— Everybody who believes should drink the cup. Huss said, and your people died over this, right. and we just go, it doesn't matter. But they saw how this was proclaiming what the real new covenant was. And if you don't do it, you're not proclaiming the new covenant, and you're lying to people about being in the new covenant or being out of the new covenant. They basically fought wars of independence over this issue. That's that's how big of a deal it was. After Huss was put to death. Right. right? I mean, he did. So it's a very big deal. And the flag for that. For that, uh, you know, those military units and stuff, it was a cup on, I think, a red background, if I remember correctly. But that was the whole flag because that's how serious they saw the issue about how Roman Catholicism was an attack on the true church because they wouldn't let true believers partake of the cup. Because otherwise, why do you think you'll drink it in the Father's kingdom? Well, guess what? The cup is to remind us about eternity and that we'll participate in eternity. And so one of the things when we talk about that it's to remind us of eternal life, it also is supposed to remind us how, what the process is to get there. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26 says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to, the, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And one of the reasons that we need to have the view of eternal life and that reminder that it's about eternal life is that also tells us what we're supposed to be doing now. We're supposed to be seeking his kingdom because we're supposed to be defeating his enemies because when his enemies are defeated is when he returns. If we want to have eternal life, it in that reminder that it's about eternal life helps us remember what is the work that we're supposed to be doing now that is the will of the Father. And when you don't, when you don't have these things in order – it makes the Christian life seem pointless. Yeah, and it, I mean it makes it and, and it makes it seem without order. It makes it seem disorderly. It makes it seem like you're just kind of bumbling along. I mean, there's this part of it of like waiting until of waiting until Christ returns, but as if you're waiting in the sense of it's just twiddling your spiritual fingers until He comes back, and that is very much not what that is very much not what that verse you just read is talking about. And you just think about the, the etymology of these words. We talk about communion and then excommunication. And, and as ideas, we have them very far apart in our church polity. But, but as words, they're, they're, one is the negation of the other. Right. And so, I mean, we should talk more about that because when we talk about the importance of communion— and, and one of the importances of it is that it draws a line between those who are saved and those who aren't. Well, 
there is a point in which really what excommunication means is that somebody was saying that they belonged and the church declares you aren't part of it anymore. And so the, the practice of excommunication really has to be somehow or other tied to or have its meaning drawn out of the practice of communion. Right, and so, I mean, kind of related to that idea, right, is that the sign of being in communion with one another is that you partake of the Lord's Supper. And communion with Christ. And communion with Christ, yes, absolutely. And so as we think of communing with the body of Christ and with Christ, that 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 excommunication becomes the sign of being excommunicated is that you're not communicating. You're not taking the Lord's Supper. If what you do is say, well, we're going to excommunicate this person, which churches do excommunication where they don't do communication, which doesn't make much sense, right? If you're not going to do the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, if you're going to do it in the evening when nobody is there, if you're going to you know, have a church within a church that does it, and you don't do it so that the person who's excommunicated that you're testifying that they're excommunicated. Just like you don't have the sign of communication, they don't have the sign of excommunication, which is they're barred from the table. Excommunication is this thing that happens at the end of a, you know, ideally, it happens at the end of a process of church discipline as outlined by the various procedures scripture gives. You know, this is what happens when somebody is called to repent and doesn't. So, so you get to that point and you realize, but that's at the very end of a process. So where does the process start? I mean, the process starts with an individual alone with themselves dealing with their sin or being called by the church to deal with their sin before you have the rest of the body having to deal with that mm -hmm. person's sin. And, and guess what? Communion itself, the way that communion is instituted has that built into it. That feature of self-examination is a part of taking communion. I mean, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, you know, just basic facts here that it's possible to take communion wrongly. And because it's possible to take a communion wrongly, Paul tells us, examine yourself. And so that's the beginning of church discipline. It's with, with you being confronted with the things that Jesus has done at this moment with the rest of the body of Christ around you. But really, this is an examine yourself. This is, this is an internal, personal thing. That's where, that's where church discipline starts is with this moment of self-discipline that you're called to every time you take communion. In... You know, part of the reason that it's worth walking through those other things first, like we did, that it's a reminder of his death, it's a reminder of the new covenant, it's a reminder of all these things, that God puts that in place. Because part of that is when you examine yourself, you're supposed to be looking at this is what Christ did. This is what Christ said he would do for me. This is where he said I would put my hope. This is where how he said he would work through the Holy Spirit in my heart to cause me not to or to walk in his statutes. You know, because he told me all these things. That's the criteria that you examine yourself against, that he's given you the spirit of truth so that you can see what truth is and you can see where your sin is. And, you know, you said the first step of church discipline, and it's, I kind of agree with that, but you should really do it beforehand, right? But there is a place where, I mean, we should be reading the scripture. That's part of it. There's other things, I, but, and, sure, I, and, the, I, the first, and I know you're not The first step in, in church discipline is self-discipline. 
And communion is, is a regular is, opportunity right. to make that happen if you're lacking it in other moments. Right. And it's it's kind of the, the final straw, right, in a sense, because you should be doing it continually. But that Lord's Supper is kind of the time where you're most confronted with this is what Christ did for you. Where do you actually stand? As opposed to when you're in your closet, you know, praying Yes, that can be discipline. That's where you should cry out to God to show you your sins. But when God is saying, this is what I did for me, that's kind of the most intense part of that self-examination when you're looking at what Christ did in the Lord's table. And when you don't do it, it's really easy to forget to look at for your sins. It's very easy to just accept, I'm fine with Christ because you don't, because God's name wasn't hallowed before you. And because his name wasn't hallowed before you, you go, I don't need to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I mean, it. It's we have we don't really want to make this whole podcast about the timing of it and and how frequent you ought to do it. We practice it weekly, and one of the reasons that we practice it weekly is for this reason. It's because there is associated with the partaking of the Lord's Supper this call to examine yourself, this call to to reset, to to check things. And as a pastor, you. Oftentimes we hear about the disadvantages, the, the, the logistical difficulties of having the Lord's Supper every week. But as a pastor, you should just be looking for this as a great opportunity. If you don't have to be clever, you don't have to be creative, you don't have to work it into your sermon, it's just right there. You get to open up that section of the Bible and say, examine yourself. And, and, and everybody knows it's coming next week too. And the, I think one of the main, main reasons why a lot of pastors don't do the Lord's Supper very often is because if you have a bunch of people in your church that don't really want to walk with God, they want to say they do, they don't really want to be confronted with the statement, examine yourself. And they don't want to be confronted week after week with examine yourself. And the pastors are going, if we do the Lord's Supper regularly, we'll lose church attendance or our church attendance will be reduced. And and instead, what pastors should be doing is we want a shepherd sheep and not goats. And we should be willing to take that risk that if people cannot face examining themselves so that they flee, that says something about them, not about you, not about Christ. And what Christ says is my people are to be holy. Let God, let God divide them. Exactly. I mean, seriously, let God do it with this thing that he set up where Jesus said, do this. Just go ahead and do it see what happens, you know. Because in a sense, you're doing it the same way Christ did when he, after he fed the 5,000, he says, you have to eat my body and drink my blood and a bunch of people left. Well, guess what? Try it in your church. It will make your church healthier. You know, the, the changing the, the Marine slogan, commune them all and let God sort them out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do it. And I mean, and it's it's when you were talking about the fact that there's a point where a person would say, I'm not going to take communion. I can't tell you how many online discussions I've seen where people bring up the question of should I take, should I ever withhold communion? And I see the overwhelming answer is no, you should never, you should never let it pass. And I'm just, and I mean, and, and I'm, and my argument is not that you should if you ever see a sin in your life that you can't take communion, that is not the argument. But there is this part of it where, I mean, I kind of think about it in the sense of, to me, it's sort of like giving a status report on something where there's an aspect of, you know, you know, like 
if somebody asks me, are you doing this? And you say, I did, the, you know, and you look and you say, I did this and I was working on this and you can give real tact, you can give real meaningful, honest answers that you were doing these things and moving in this direction. That's meaningful. But if over a couple of weeks of doing communion, you look at it and you go, there's no, I have no evidence to my, I could not argue with myself in any honesty that I've been moving towards holiness in these areas that I've been, I've just been plunging headlong into sin. Guess what? You should stop and say, I, I think I'm going to let the cup pass this week. Because the answer is like what you were saying. When you were praying during the week, you hadn't been, you clearly haven't been dealing with this. And so you're, you're being called on the carpet in a sense in a private way. And it does become a little more public, public private. Well, way. I mean, yeah, you call kind of the carpet in a private way to examine it. And then if it's relevant, it becomes more public. It becomes a little bit more public in that moment. And I mean, and, you know, if somebody wanted to say, hey, before you did it, you should go and talk to your pastor. I don't have a fundamental problem with that, but I but I generally see there is a point where a person would say, I cannot take it this week. I feel like I'm going to I'm not going to be discerning the body and scripture. This is one of the few things that God says he kills people for. There's I mean, you look through the New Testament, there's no, no he I mean, says he kills them, but in the New Testament, <laughs> yes. special things that he kills people. Yes, for. as I'm saying, if you look in the New Testament for things that God says that are that are like you said, obedient issues of obedience that he says I kill people for it is for taking the Lord's Supper wrongly. Right. And that passage is, in, you know, immediately after the last passage that we read. But I think it's it's the language is interesting, too, in First Corinthians 11, starting in verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And there's there's two things here. One is that we are supposed to examine ourselves, and we can examine ourselves in a far greater detail than anybody external can ever examine us. But Paul is also writing to them and saying, some of you are getting drunk. Some of you are gluttonous. You're shoving your way to the front of the line and you're eating food so that people are going hungry. And he's also kind of going, hey, when your church is like that and you don't do anything about it, the church isn't discerning the Lord's body either. Right. So there's self-examination that's very particular to you that, that you know, if we're doing the self-examination right, your group examination is not going to be a problem. But there's still a place for the group because remember in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul already said this is where you need to excommunicate people. And so there is the idea of self-examination, but then there's also the, the step up where you excommunicate people and you go, we don't think you're part of the Lord's body. And we don't want you to bring judgment on us because we're not discerning the Lord's body. Because the, the point here is not just that, that you examined yourself, but among us, there's people who are sick that are dying. You know, that's, that's a sign of judgment, not just on the individual, but also on the church. And so, again, you don't examine it nearly the same level as an individual can examine because you don't know, their, you don't know what God's convicting them of. You don't know the details of their life. But there is a, a level of granularity where if he's sleeping with his, his father's wife— you get him out of there. If he's coming and he's getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, you get him out of there. And so there is that second level that the church should be protecting the name of Christ. And so in that same epistle, Paul says this about uh, what we would call church discipline. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 
Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And so when Paul's saying don't even eat with them, obviously that includes the Lord's Supper. But, you know, it's not just the Lord's Supper. Well, if you take the Lord's Supper the way I, the way the Greek reads, right, the, that word supper there means the largest meal of the day. So this isn't just a little, you know, thimble full of wine and, a, you know, and a little piece of bread. This is actually a meal and that you're supposed to make it very obvious that they've been excommunicated, that they've been cut off from that meal. And it's not just self-examination that causes them to be cut off from that meal. It's also the church is examining them and saying, look, you're an extortioner. Your whole life testifies to your covetousness. We're not going to let you partake of the table. And so, you know, we kind of said this before that you can't tell if somebody is saved, but there's things that you can look at and say, this person clearly is not saved. And the Lord's table forces the church to say, you're not on our side of the line. You're on the other side of the line. And so one of the things that the church is supposed to be doing is saying we are a holy people set apart to God. And the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that you do that is make us see, be seen as a holy people. If you don't have communion, if you don't have regular communion, if communion isn't significant, then the other then the negation of it ceases to mean anything. You know, what I mean, there's a part mm -hmm. of it where I mean. And like you were or, saying with COVID is that there's a whole bunch of people that stop having communion with one another. And I would just argue that in a lot of ways, they stopped having communion with one another a long time before that. And COVID was just God saying, you don't want to have communion? Fine. Each of you go to your own homes and pretend like you're having communion with me rather than the body having communion with right. me. Because you don't do the Lord's Supper. You don't eat meals together. You don't have any communion, so you've already eliminated. So I will effectively demonstrate the excommunication that you have already declared upon yourselves. And I think that's one of the things that happened in COVID is that a lot of churches basically, God's saying, you were already excommunicated. I'm just making it more obvious. The other thing that it could do is, it, so you say it, it, it makes excommunication not meaningful. I think you're right, but then the other thing that happens is we recognize that some discipline has to happen in this case, whatever case has risen to the level the church has to deal with. So instead of doing what God says to do, we do something else. Right. We'll, we'll call it by a different name. We'll call it disfellowshipping or, you know, we'll have some functional version of like Amish shunning or something like that. Where right. We, we won't allow them to attend church because we right, want we, them to we'll hear the word of do God. Something <laughs> other than what, Paul tells us you should do, you know, and, and I mean, this might seem odd to somebody to hear, but when we talk about excommunication, we, we're not saying that person can't come to church. Right. We want that person in church. We want that person in church and we want them watching while they are not partaking. 
it's very hard to restore someone with which you have no relationship. You know what I mean? It, I mean, it, it, it's not the end of, excommunication is not the end of the relationship between the church and the person unless the person flees. Based on what scripture says, but if you don't believe this and the reason that you don't believe this is because you're not doing regular communion, you've got to come up with some other way to say, I'm different than that person. You've got to come up with, with some other non-biblical way. non-biblical means to express the to same define idea. holiness, right? You know, you're defining holiness by, by lines other than where God has drawn those lines. And all that risks is actually making it basically impossible to have the kind of relationship that could restore that person. Right. One of my favorite things about this verse in 5, 9 through 11 is that <laughs> Paul actually says, I didn't mean when I said these things that you should stay away from people in the world who are like this or else you would have to leave the world. <laughs> I mean, it is it is the most, it is the passage, not know if it's the most, but it reminds me of a parent talking to little children <laughs> because it is, I mean, Paul is saying it as in one sense of going, this is really obvious that I can't mean that. So therefore I'm saying this shouldn't exist in the church. And and that's needed today. Or or it's more like the little child who has figured out how to interpret what's coming from the parent. Oh, if you meant it that way, I would have to leave the world. So you can't have meant it that way. <laughs> right. Are you saying that, Dad? You can't be saying that. But Paul didn't think they'd get there by themselves, so he decided <laughs> to go ahead and say it. Paul's the little child here. <laughs> yeah. We've had this conversation where we've We've had a long conversation, really, where our focus has really been on just the one fact of the importance of communion. There are so many other things that we could say. I mean, in a sense, what we're doing is in, to talk about the importance of communion. You have to talk about the theology of communion. But we've only scratched the surface right. of the breadth of the theology associated with with communion and and where it fits in history and, and all that. And And— We've hardly touched at all on the practice of communion other than to talk about, well, if it's important, you should do it often. Any of the other mechanics of it, we've basically left unsaid. So there's so much more that we could right. say on it. But but in order for our, our listeners to be interested in that, you've got to start with this fact of, hey, do you really think it's important? Do you really value it? Do you, When Jesus says, do it, do you think, I ought to do it. We've kind of argued that communion is very important. And I think there's a lot of things that if you start doing it and practicing it a certain way, there it changes the way you worship. And so in our worship, it's had some very particular things that we've done to make it important and to make it central. And some of, and we think these things flow out of scripture. I mean, like you talked about before, about how it talks about the, you know, the biggest meal of the day. So about six years ago, one of the things we did is as part of the worship service, we, we end that worship service with a meal that we partake, we partake of together. And it's a, it's, it's a, you know, very similar to a potluck meal. Family members bring me, bring food. And in that service, in that meal, we partake of communion together. And there's a shift that happens in doing that. I mean, there's a part of it where, first of all, when we talk about communion being central, there's a part of it where we take we take a meal together as the church. And so one of the things that Scripture does is it doesn't come in and destroy families, but it does say that the church is a family. And so by doing that, there's a reality to that communion. There's a reality to it. It's not this just this communion service that we participate in. 
there's this communion that ends up taking up, it takes up a pretty big chunk of the day because we're going to eat together. We're going to talk together. There are people who stay till two and three, four in the afternoon sometimes. And so in the end, communion was just by moving that into that meal, it didn't become this bigger thing by itself, but it became part of a bigger thing because in the end, there were all these practices that came up around it that, that increased our ability to relate to one another. And it increased the, the visible signs of those relationships within the church. And, and one of the just mechanical things that happened there that I don't know if we predicted it or not is you're looking at a lot of people when you're partaking of communion in that setting where you're sitting around tables and you're you're passing the bread around you're you're actually looking across the table at people as opposed to when you take it in pews or when you go to the front you may not actually if you've got your head down doing your examining you may not actually see anybody else and so if that's happening you're missing those opportunities where a brother who would normally be taking communion is letting it pass and when they let it pass now you've got that opportunity. Hey, I saw you let the cup pass today. What's going on? Those kinds of opportunities are now there that weren't. It's a real, produces a real connection between the body that wasn't there before, right? Because kind of without communion, because we can think of it with communion with Christ instead of communion with one another and with Christ. And so what it ends up being is for years when I've done it that way as an elder, I would always intentionally hand out to half the church, you know, the bread and half the church, the cup so that I could see who was taking and who was not partaking because you can watch, but nobody else in the church saw it. So you still have this, you know, the people and then the head and then God, as opposed to the people being the body that is supposed to interact with each other. And when you do it that way, all of a sudden it becomes the body's communing because that's what communing is. It's that we're, there's a unity to the body and the body holds itself accountable. And it's not just that you have the leaders that have the responsibility. I mean, that's what Huss was fighting against when it comes down to it is that he was fighting that it's not supposed to be these leaders that are separate. It's supposed to be the body is acting like a body, which is why they should all get the cup. And, and the reason I mentioned those practices isn't to say everybody should do it exactly like that. I'm, we came to those conclusions because we do believe they're biblical. And I mean, and I would, I could, you could sit down and have a long conversation about why they're, why we would argue they're biblical. But the reason I mentioned is because there is a centrality to it that is very different than I grew up with. You did it on Sunday night. It took 20 minutes. It was a weird service because it took too long to build a certain, you know I mean? It, it took so long to do it. And it was so, it was very awkward. It was very weird. It kind of stood out. No, you know, and, it just it had it was it was just a very incongruous practice and this has made it something that is that is central to the to the worship service and so it's i think those things need to be thought about i think people really need to dwell on them and look at scripture and what the purpose of it is and what it's achieving when when you talk about the services you grew up with you're almost saying that it it wasn't church it was it was the break from the pattern it was the break from yes. the routine and you're saying now with the way that it's been baked in, that that it's now, you're almost not doing church. I mean, it, our family feels it this way when we're off visiting and we're, we're visiting and, and the church service happens, but it's not a communion Sunday. You almost feel like you didn't do church. Right. And, and the preaching can be great. The music can be amazing. And then we almost didn't do church. And when you think about why 
the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering together. It's so that you can exhort one another to love and good works. And if if it's just those other things, without the meal, without the time of the Lord's Supper, all of a sudden you don't have the same opportunity for the exhortation to love and good works, which is what the, and that's another part of the meeting of the church. And we we put these secondary things these things that it's okay, you can listen to the radio and hear a, a pastor that might be better than your pastor, probably is better than your pastor, because let's be serious, there's people that are more gifted in eloquence than others. And you can do so many of those things that you could do off, but what unifies the church is you come together as one body, and that's communion is supposed to be that. It's it's the, the one thing that you cannot achieve with a Zoom church. People try, though. You know, you get your little cup and your little thing that you pull off the top that has the wafer in it, and people are doing it. But they see how fake that it is when they're all in their Zoom meeting doing their Lord's Supper because they're not actually breaking bread together. They're not one loaf. They're not one cup. They're not discerning the body. Right. So we spent this episode talking about the importance of the Lord's Supper because it really is something that the church needs to turn back to if we want the church to be strong. It's so easy for us to do these other things that we think will fix the church. But if we don't get back to the fundamental things that Christ has commanded, we can't expect God to bless the church. We can't expect him to commune with the church if we don't want to commune with one another and with him. And so as we, as we talk about a lot of other subjects, I do want to just point out how central the Lord's Supper is to actually being the Lord's people. And may we all have many delightful days where we gather and we break bread together and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we commune with Christ because that is what reminds us of so many important things. That is what causes us to set our hope in the future because Christ will come and he will redeem his bride. Thank you for listening. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.